well, it's kind of fun preaching with all the Christmas decorations and, you know, it's just kind of is neat looking, isn't it? It's extra snazzy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 17. And uh, we're going to continue to look at Jesus and the kingdom of God this morning. And uh, I just want you to know we're actually going to be taking a break from Luke 17. And we'll be picking it up again in April. So what's going to happen? It's a surprise. It's going to be a New Year's surprise. So you'll just have to wait. But uh, so if you're thinking, are we ever going to finish Luke? I don't know. I don't know. But we're going to try and finish up verses 20 and 21 this morning. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Jesus, or the kingdom of Christ and God... uh, the Bible speaks of frequently, it speaks of it in the Old Testament, doesn't use those exact phrases, but it talks about the rule of God, the rule of Christ, the Messiah on earth, the righteous branch of David. And there is this great, um, just accumulation of information that's anticipating the rule of God, uh, a rule that is righteous, a rule where there's no injustice. And uh, we looked at quite a bit of that last week. And I don't know if you think about this, but you should, because the scriptures teach that believers will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And just think about that. You know, imagine having uh, having been raptured, having been a glorified body like Jesus's body after his resurrection, a body that uh, it looks like it's like our bodies and uh, um, hopefully a little better. Um, it looks like flesh and blood, but it's not. It's it's a body fit for eternity, a body that will never wear out. And remember, Jesus was able to just show up in a room. And yet they were able to hug him and he even ate some food. And then he kind of went through the wall again. And we're going to have a body like that. I don't know how exactly it works. The, the Bible doesn't say it says we'll be like Christ. We'll be glorified in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, uh, when God uh, transforms us and resurrects the dead and raises up, raises us up into glory to have glorified bodies to meet the Lord in the air and thus always be with the Lord. And when Christ returns, we are with him. And when he rules and reigns on the earth over all those people who came to Christ during the tribulation, we will rule and reign with Christ uh, together with mortals on the earth. Jesus will be glorified, ruling and reigning over all the earth from Jerusalem, and we will be co-regents with him. All that that uh, means, the Bible doesn't spell out in any sort of detail. It just tells us that that's how it's going to happen. And what's interesting, we read a few texts last week just about what will happen during the kingdom when, you know, the lion dwells with the lamb. When uh, all of those aggressive animals that, you know, we would be scared of today become passive, become, you know, eat grass and uh, uh, no more biting mosquitoes and, and, you know, you can play with spiders and not be scared about it. Uh, your garden only grows things to eat. That'd be great, wouldn't it? If you just water your yard, things to eat grow. You know, even uh, if you don't plant, instead of just always weeds, and then you have to purposely plant things to grow, things that eat grow. And just think about what that would be like. 
It's really, really hard to imagine, but it, the Bible tells us we need to be thinking about these things. I like to think about, and what about all the, you know, the buildings and what all the structures? What's going to happen with this? Well, we know during the tribulation, a lot of them will be knocked down. The scriptures say there will be these huge earthquakes that decimate the cities of the world. But, you know, what happens after that? Surely there's going to be some sort of huge cleanup effort, I'm sure. But are we going to have, you know, use some of the modern technology? Would we have cell phones in the kingdom? Hopefully not text messaging. Um, yeah, so are we going to have that? Are we going to have radio or TV? Hopefully not. You know, won't be anything like the TV we have today. Uh, a little better programming and probably not any commercials. But is Jesus going to use some of the same technology we have today and, and maybe add to that? Or is he going to kind of set that aside and make it very rural? And, you know, we're going to have farms and, and walk around and... To some of you are going to be happy if we are, you know, forced to ride horses a lot. But, um, you know, how is that going to be? How are the mortals on earth um, who uh, were not raptured, who have come to Christ during the tribulation and are, who are believers when Christ returns in his glory, enter into his kingdom? How how does that work? Well, we don't really know. But imagine what it would be like to have Jesus as king over all the earth. He knows everything. He's all-knowing, and he's all-powerful, and he's all-wise. He would know everything before it happened. If somebody wanted to commit some terrible crime, because we know that, that people on the earth, uh, the believers are going to enter in the kingdom, and they're going to have children, and not all those children are going to be automatically saved. Those children rebel against the Lord. Jesus could intervene before and say, you know what? You were just going to do this wrong thing. And he'd be right. There's going to be no lawyers in heaven. No secular courts. There's, you know, you don't need to present evidence to somebody who knows everything and say, well, this is how it happened. Well, I just want you to know I'm all knowing and I know how it happened. As a matter of fact, before the earth was created, I knew how it happened. And you are guilty or you're innocent and... And that'll just be great, won't it? That we won't have to deal with injustice. We won't be, you know, vexed like Lot, whose righteous soul was tormented. You know, when you read the papers and it's like, ugh. You know, where you're just irritated because there's all of this criminal activity and it's overlooked. And, you know, people aren't getting justice. And the, the, the wicked are, are, are described as good. And the good are described as wicked. And everything's so twisted and tormented in this present world system. And yet, when Christ rules and reigns on earth, it's going to be totally different. And we just need to think about that. The scriptures just give us a little glimpse into that. And imagine what it would be like having, not forgetting... You know, some of you who are older or probably thought, I think I've forgotten more than I've remembered, you know. Um, and then the older we get, the more we forget. But imagine having perfect minds and, and imagine learning and learning and learning and learning and never forgetting anything and learning and learning and seeing Christ and, and getting to know the angels and getting to know the saints of all the ages. Hey, Paul, you want to have lunch? You know, isn't that great where you, you get to know people and you know, all these people that you don't even know from different, from different nations and different times of history. And you talk to them and you accumulate 
knowledge and you serve Christ and, you know, you, you have responsibility, you have work to do and you're glad to do it. And the degree to which you are faithful here on earth, the degree to which you are entrusted with responsibilities in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, think about it. It will be incredible. And after that, after Christ's earthly reign and he recreates the new heavens and the new earth, then who knows what happens after that? It's just unimaginable. It is so incredible. And so we began to talk about the kingdom of God last week. And uh, and I just want you to know this is a very tormenting subject for me um, because there is so much to tell you. Um, yesterday I was working on my sermon. I, it was about an hour and 15 minutes long and I thought I've got to cut it down. And so I, I cut it down to an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> After working six hours on it, um, I kept working and I thought I was slicing things out. And then when I got to the end, it was bigger than it was when I started. And so tonight or this morning when I got up, I just said, you know, out of here. And uh, somebody actually came up after the second service. And said, I wish you could have talked about that. I was going to. But you'll have to wait till April uh, to get it. I'm sorry. I just there's so many good things here. Well, what's interesting is, is that Jesus uh, is headed towards Jerusalem. We talked about he made the little detour and he he encounters some Pharisees along the way. We don't know. We don't know where they are. Um, and they ask him, well, so where when's this kingdom coming? And uh, I think Matthew Henry had a good observation and that, you know, what happened when John the Baptist came on the scene? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus went out preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he sent the disciples out preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so for three years, the Pharisees have been told the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'm sure they're thinking, so where is it? And one of the things I'm sure that was frustrating to them is in their mind, because of what the Old Testament prophets had said, when the kingdom of the Messiah would come, the Gentile political powers would be overthrown, and then the Messiah would rule and reign from Jerusalem. So they're looking around and they're saying, you know, is this your army? How are you taking care of the Romans? How are you going to overthrow the Romans? And and when are you going to exalt us? Because obviously we are like super godly. And you you aren't exalting us and you're not putting down Rome. And so we're having a hard time believing that you are actually the Messiah. I mean, we are impressed with your miracles, but you're not you're not linking up with what we know to be true from the scriptures. And so they don't understand. And when Jesus begins to answer them, I'm sure they're more confused than ever. And last week we learned that in order to have a kingdom, you need three things. You need a king, subjects, and an area that they're ruled over. That's what you need. And so our working definition of a kingdom is wherever the king is ruling over his subjects. We also learned about... uh, three different kinds of the reign of God and Christ in the scripture. One is called his universal reign where God, because he is God, he rules over his creation. He always has, is, and will be ruling over his whole 
creation. We looked up scriptures on that. There is also what, what is described as a spiritual reign, and that is when Christ died, he ascended, having received all power and authority, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, and now he is ruling and reigning believers. We are his ambassadors here on earth. He is our king, and so we live for our king Jesus. He is our Lord. And so there is a spiritual reign of Christ right now going on. And then there is a future reign where Christ, it's called his mediatorial reign. That is, he mediates his reign on the earth. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, ruling and reigning over the world from Jerusalem. And the scriptures teach all of these things. We looked at uh, many texts last week. For instance, Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen, which says of the righteous branch of David, which is another uh, nickname of Jesus, he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Or Zechariah, who after he describes the second coming and Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives, he says in Zechariah, 14, verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. So having said that, let's look at our text again. We'll do a little bit of review of the part we looked at already and we'll get into some new stuff. Look at Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. We read this. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, from this text, we have looked at uh, a good question to ask. And one of the qualities of the kingdom, we're going to look at two more this morning, so we can have encouragement and hope. Um, There is so much on the kingdom in the scripture, and yet oftentimes you talk to Christians, they never mention it, they never think about it. This is just, you're missing out. This is like the huge theme of scripture. And so we already looked at the good question to ask, verse 20, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. This is a good question that all of us should be asking. Every believer wants to know this, and every believer longs for this. They want to know when the kingdom's coming. They want to know. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray, right? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, In other words, we want to see... You rule and reign on the earth like you are now ruling in heaven. And this is good, Paul says, because everybody who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies themselves. Why? Because, you know, you don't want to be in the middle of some scary, high-handed rebellion against God and then all of a sudden raptured into his presence. That would be embarrassing, wasn't it? Wouldn't it? It's like, oh, sorry. You know, you don't want to be there. And so knowing that Jesus is going to come back any moment at any time is really a check against our temptation to sin. And so we purify ourselves and this is good. But then we also talked about last week, but what if you're one of those people and you're kind of when, when, when people mention the second coming of Christ, of Jesus coming back at any moment, you know, you're driving down the freeway and all of a sudden, if that scares you then something's wrong. It could be you're a believer and you're living in sin and you know you're living in sin and you don't want to depart from your sin. And because of that, you don't want to stand before Jesus, but most likely you don't know Christ. 
You can pretend to be a Christian. You can go to church. You can talk the lingo. But whenever the second coming of Christ is mentioned, inside there is fear. And if that is your response, it's probably because you don't know Christ. You just call yourself a Christian because Christians can't wait to see Jesus. You know, uh, when you talk to unbelievers about dying, they want to do everything they can not to die. They are terrified of death. They don't want to die. They, they, They want to hold on to this life, man. They're eating their vitamins, you know. They're doing their exercise. They're they're doing whatever they need to do because they want to live. They want to live. But Jesus says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who believes in me will never die. Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And so when you have Christians, I mean, no, Christians aren't masochists. They're like, you know, I want to suffer and die. But like, you know, hey, you know, if I drop dead running, great. You know, right at the last, if I preach and I fall over, praise God. No, don't shed a single tear. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. And people see that a lot of times when you're eager to, to be in heaven with Christ, that it's kind of morbid. But really, you know what's morbid? To want to stay in this sin-cursed world. To be around all the sin and the corruption and the temptation in your own wretched self. Where the things you want to do and you don't do and you do the very things you hate. That's kind of morbid. To want that instead of to be free from sin in the presence of Christ. And so we should all be really asking when the kingdom of God is going to come. And if we fear, the solution is to give our lives to Christ. Because once you have the Holy Spirit in you and once you know you know Jesus, then you can't wait for him to come. You just can't wait. You know, you just, you're you're in here, you're having a Christmas concert at night, and all of a sudden all the power goes out, and the first thought that comes to your mind is, Christ is coming back! (laughs) Unless you're a sound person. (laughs) And then you think, the judgment of God! (laughs) Uh, But yeah, that's, there's, there's, you know, you, you live in that anticipation That maybe it could happen, maybe now, maybe now, maybe now. So we looked at that. Secondly, we looked at there were no signs to be observed. Look at the middle of verse 20. He answered and said to them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. And this would have been a shocker to the Pharisees. They would have thought, what? Listen, pal, we're experts in the scriptures. We know the prophets. And the prophets tell us there's going to be signs in the heavens. There's going to be signs on earth. There's going to be the the great and terrible day of the Lord. We know there's going to be signs. How can you say there's going to be no signs through the kingdom of heaven? Not only that, later in Luke 17, and then again in Luke 21, Jesus is going to tell us about all the signs of his coming. And so when you look at that, you think, this is confusing me. Well, it confused them because they thought, okay, there's no signs. So why is there signs if there's no signs? Uh, You can see how that would be frustrating. And this simple solution helps you understand why they were so frustrated. Because when they looked at all the prophecies of the Messiah's, first and second coming they put them together 
They just saw the Messiah coming to earth, establishing his kingdom and ruling. They didn't understand that he had to come a first time as a baby born of a virgin to live a life, to die on the cross, to make atonement for sins, and that he would come back a second time, not in humiliation, but in great glory, to set up his kingdom on earth. They took both of those two groups of texts and put them together. And you can understand why, because the the prophets put them together, right? For unto us a child will be born, for unto us a son will be given, which happened when? Jesus' first coming. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. When does that happen? Well, it hasn't happened yet. Same verse, one verse, and yet in between half the verse, there's a gap of at least 2,000 years. And so this is what's frustrating the experts in the law. They're thinking, this can't be true. This can't be true. Look at all these scriptures that say that there's going to be all these signs before the day of the Lord and the establishment of the kingdom. And now you're telling us there's no signs to be observed. What's going on here? Well, the English translation doesn't doesn't really convey what's in the text very well. I looked at different translations and they don't really uh, deal with this well. This is, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, notice when it says is not coming, that implies he's talking about what? A future kingdom, right? Is coming? Well, there's no future tense in the verse. Literally, this should read, the kingdom of God is not with present observation. Or you might paraphrase it phrase it by saying, right now, there's no signs to be observed for the kingdom. Now, there were signs leading up to Jesus' birth, and there were signs that Jesus was the Messiah before that. Remember what when John said, are you the one? He said, go tell John. And what did he do? He gave him a list of signs, right? But right then, presently, Jesus was the king, He had his subjects with him and was standing right before them. They're saying, where, when's the kingdom coming? And he's saying, vernacular, dudes, I'm here. Here I am. I'm the Messiah. I am the king. These are my subjects. And whenever the king is ruling, his subject is the the kingdom. All you need to do is repent and believe you will enter into the kingdom. I mean, you're looking at for some signs. That's my second coming. I, I got to die first. But see, they didn't understand that. And I think Jesus didn't explain it to them as a form of judgment because of their hard hearts. And so there are no signs to be observed. And this is where we left off. The third point, which is the second quality of the kingdom is you don't have to find Jesus at his second coming. Look at verse 21. Jesus continues, and notice the tense change. He has just said, presently, now, there's nothing to observe. Then he says in verse 21, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. In other words, he now switches to what tense? Future. He's now said right now, I'm the king and these are my subjects. And so you don't need to be looking for the kingdom because voila, I'm here. But 
in the future, they're going to be saying, go here, go there, here it is, there it is. And Jesus switches tents. Or will they say, employing a future tense. So now he's talking about the future, the second coming, which will usher in the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. And then following that, his eternal reign after the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. And so the Pharisees who understand these things pretty well, they understand they memorized huge chunks of the scripture. They know these things are thinking, how is this working? There's no signs and and they're going to say here and there because they're asking, well, where is it? You know, what is the sign of your coming? And Jesus says, listen, one thing you don't want to be deceived about is you don't need to go and find the kingdom. It's going to come to you. When Jesus comes back in his second coming glory, you don't need to go looking for it. You know, you don't need some guy on the radio saying, hey, come out of the Mojave Desert and find the Messiah. You don't need to do that. Some guy held up in a compound in Oregon, you know. Then, hey, you know, I've got my compound. I'm the Messiah. Come here. No. And we know this is talking about Jesus' second coming because that's what Jesus goes on to say. Look at Luke 17, verse 23. It's a little bit farther on in the chapter. Jesus says, they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away and do not run after them. In Mark chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus explains the signs of a second coming and says to his disciples, and then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe them. Jesus says this over and over again. During the second coming, you won't need anybody to point Jesus out to you. It's going to be so obvious. You say, well, how obvious? Well, if you look at Luke 17, verse 24, right after Jesus says, don't run around looking for me in my second coming glory. Look at verse 24 of Luke 17. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will be the Son of Man in his day. We don't have a lot of lightning here. It's kind of a shame, but... You've been in a severe lightning storm. It's cool. It's scary. It's wonderful, especially if you're in like wide open country like Texas or Indiana or Iowa, you know, where you have lots of open space, these big storms at nighttime. The lightning flashes and you can just, it just like pulses the whole sky. It's just lit up. I've even been woke up in the middle of the night because I saw the flashes of lightning Before I could hear the thunder, I kept thinking, you know, you wake up and you think, what was that? That was like somebody took a flash of me while I was sleeping. And then you try and go back to get and I'll say, you hear it's like you can see it with your eyes closed. It's very hard to miss. And Jesus says, that's how it's going to be when I come back. You won't be going, I wonder what, you know, where is he? Let's go out in the desert. No, everybody's going to see it. Revelation 1, 7 says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him so it is to be amen you won't need to find jesus at his second coming because he's going to come and find you so what lessons can we learn from this a couple things first 
Consider who Jesus is talking to and consider that they don't believe in him. I think the first lesson uh, is that we need to be careful because we can be very religious, very knowledgeable of the Bible, and yet not be prepared for Jesus' second coming. I think we know this to be true. I mean, the Pharisees in our text were looking for his first coming, right? They're experts in the law. They know all the prophecies. They know everything. They know, okay, uh, tribe of Judah, uh, born in Bethlehem, uh, you know, um, does miracles, uh, has a forerunner who goes before him. Uh, you know, they're thinking about all these things. They know all those prophecies. And yet, though they have all that knowledge, Most of them are not believing in Jesus. They're blind to it. And do you think something like this could happen today concerning the second coming? You know it. You know it can happen and you know it is happening. There are are hellfire preachers who don't know Christ. There are leaders in conservative Bible churches who don't know Christ. Who teach Sunday school, but they don't know Christ. Who give counsel to people, but they don't know Christ. Who make decisions for the church, but they don't know Christ. And they say they believe the Bible and they can tell you what they believe and their doctrine seems to be pretty good, but they don't know Christ. Think about it. And surely if it can happen to leaders in the church, surely it can happen to those who aren't leaders as well. People who are very faithful at going to church, but who aren't ready for the second coming. And the question is, is that you? Could that be you? Could that be you? Could you be one of those faithful church attenders who isn't ready for the second coming? You might look at your life and say, well, you know, I'm doing these certain things. I do come to church and I do give and I do serve and I do, you know, these things and those things. And so I'm doing these good deeds. And you know what? Believers do good deeds. And so that might be an indication that you might uh, know Christ. But you know what? It might not be an absolute indication. Why is that? Because Jesus, when he was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, many will come to me on that last day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not? And they list all these good deeds that they have done in Jesus's name. And then what does Jesus say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So Jesus describes the many religious do-gooders as not knowing him. And so, of course, that can happen. So the question is, okay, okay, you're thinking, all right, so so how do I know? How do I know I'm ready for the second coming? How do I know that I'm ready for Christ's glorious return? How do I know I'm going to be raptured and transformed and given a glorified body? How do I know that for sure? Well, the root issue is this. Do you love Jesus in your heart. You can't fake that one. You can serve in Sunday school alongside somebody who knows the Lord and you can't tell you apart. And all those external deeds, you can be a believer or an unbeliever and do them. But the real issue is what's going on in your heart. Do you love Jesus from your heart? Could you be that faithful church attender who doesn't really love the Lord? See, that that is the real issue. And I know you may be thinking to yourself, well, you know, you're kind of scaring me. 
Good. I hope I am scaring you. And you say, well, Pastor Jack, you know, I mean, if you scare me like this, I mean, what, you know, what if I am a believer? Now you're making me think I'm not. And and then you'd scare me for no reason. Why would you do that? <laughs> no, friend, listen. If you escaped a burning building and I warned you of the consequences of being in that building so that you stepped back further, that wouldn't hurt you. But if you were in that building and thought you were safe, you'd be glad I warned you to get out. And another person might ask, well, Pastor Jack, I, I, you know, I am concerned because I don't want to be rejected. And, and you're talking about, you know, maybe going to hell, thinking I'm a Christian my whole life. I mean, that's not good. That scares me. Listen, if you do know Christ, no fear of hell is going to jeopardize your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. You're not going to fall away from the Lord. So, you know, if I scare you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you already know Christ and, and maybe you're just trying to get your act together and you're just, you know, young in the Lord or whatever. Or you've entangled some sins. And so, you know, I, you know, I just want you to know, but I know there's people who don't know Christ. They're in the burning building and they think they're outside. I want you to be scared. And I want you to flee to Christ. And so if you're out there thinking, well, how can I be sure? Then the root issue is, do you love Jesus from your heart? That's it. That is the telltale sign. And, and what, what is that like? What is it like when you love Jesus? It's like, I, I love reading my Bible. Now, that doesn't mean I find it easy to be faithful in Bible reading, you know, it's kind of like when you know you should work out because you've been eating too much fudge and cookies and not that any of us would ever do that. But, you know, you should probably go for a walk and maybe go to the gym and maybe eat less. And and so, you know, you need to work out and you don't really want to work out and and you're making excuses not to work out. And sometimes it's better to just sit in your easy chair and eat some more cookies. But if you do get up out of the chair and you do go for that walk and you come back and what do you say to yourself? I'm so glad I did that. That was good. And you know, you may find it difficult just because Satan is doing everything he can to keep you from reading and pondering and meditating on God's word. And you may find that difficult, but when you finally do it, do you go, that is good. Do you want to talk to Jesus? Do you want to pray to Jesus? Do you want to serve Jesus? Do you want to be more like him? And you look at your life and go, man, I am so messed up, but I want to be more like him. I am such a sinner, but I want to be more righteous. Yes, I'm not doing a lot of things I should be doing. And I want to glorify God with every part of my life. If that's your desire, because you love Jesus, not to try and earn your salvation or be good. So God will put you on the balance and say, well, your good deeds are a little bit more than your bad. deeds." No, you say, listen, I'm saved by grace through faith alone. I've trusted in Christ and I want to just follow him, even though I'm a miserable failure. I love the Lord. And when I think of Jesus coming back, I just think, yeah, then you can be pretty sure that you know Christ. It's most certain that you do. But if you just come to church because you've always gone to church, your parents made you go to church and you go to church because that's what you do on Sunday. 
and you serve because your parents said that's what you're supposed to do and you didn't want to feel guilty anymore after the preacher keeps preaching at you to get involved. And you give because you're supposed to give. I mean, you don't give very much, but you give enough to say, well, at least I give. And your whole religion is kind of this formalism that you go through because that's what Christians do. If that's you, you're probably on your way to hell from the front pew. Because there's no love for the Lord that's driving your religion. Your religion is attempting to gain love from the Lord rather than you loving the Lord because he has saved you. You know, I confess that sometimes when you're trying to figure out, when you look at your life, all you see is your sin. And especially if you've been in the Bible, you know, there are some places in the Bible where you just, you know, you just feel like a worm. You know, you want to adopt worm theology. Where I woe is me and nobody likes me and everybody hates me and I guess I'll eat some worms. I mean, you just feel bad. Because you're so convicted and so confronted and you just see compared to Christ and how good he is and wonderful is how wicked you are. But still, if you love the Lord and you just say, Lord, I confess you as my Lord and my Savior and I want to live for you. I want to every day do more for you. I want you to change me because I can't even change myself. Then be of good courage. Because that is a clear indication that you will be changed and God will work in your life his good will. Secondly, we need to learn from our text that Satan will always be raising up false teachers to lead people astray. Say, well, where do you get that? Well, Jesus says, if anyone says to you, behold, he is here is the Christ or behold, he is there or whatever. Um, If anyone says, what does that mean? There are people who are what? Saying. Who are those people? False teachers. Could you imagine that, that there's going to be false teachers who are going to rise up and try and lead people astray? I mean, I've seen a lot of them in my days. We've read about them in the paper, right? These people who rise up and and they get a little following. And this is usually how it works. You know, you, after a while, you kind of get good at spotting them. This is how it works. You get some guy who's who's pretty smart and and uh, he studies the Bible, but he doesn't want anybody telling him how to study the Bible because he wants to do it himself. And so he, he, he doesn't like people telling him what to do. He's kind of a control freak. So he le- reads the internet and he kind of just gets this big, you know, patchwork quilt theology. And then he develops some of his own patches. And he comes to church and he just can't quite fit in. And he just disagrees with people. And he finds people in the church and he kind of just spreads his little discontent and grumbling and complaining with them. And pretty soon they become a small group of little grumblers and complainers. And the preacher's never quite right. And the leadership don't know what they're doing. And this church is kind of broken. We go to a different church, but I can't find any churches. And pretty soon they decide to leave. Because you know what? This church is shot. And so then they go start their own cult or sect. And of course, the one guy becomes the leader. The leader. And he doesn't like anybody telling him what to do. And he doesn't like anybody challenging him. If you challenge this person instantly, you're out. Why? Because listen, God's the one who has called me. Touch not the Lord's anointed. I mean, that's how they see themselves. 
God is the one who's speaking to me. God is the one who's real to me. You're just, and so you just do what I say. Give me your money. And they lust for fame and they lust for attention and they lust for power and women and whatever. And they become these, these maneuvers as uh, working to get control of people to have their own way. And they like the power and they like the attention. They like the spotlight. They work very quickly to remove those who begin to oppose them. And they demand that others not speak, but they can speak freely. And they twist the scriptures in subtle ways and they gather gullible people to themselves. And pretty soon you've hear, heard that a whole bunch of people have died drinking poison Kool-Aid somewhere. Listen, when false teachers call for people to come and see the Christ, don't go. Say, but, but, but what if these people what if this group is doing a lot of good? Don't go. What if they have a lot of cross-references to support their false views? Don't go. What if they do great signs and wonders? Don't go. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, you don't need to go. He comes. Listen to how Paul describes the... The second coming of Christ, I'm going to read you a text here from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. When I read this, you, you think, now, could anybody miss this? Paul says, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Think you're going to miss that one? Not in your life. What's going to happen is Jesus is going to show up. You don't know him execution you know him rescue that's what's going to happen so don't be deceived don't go here and don't go there he's not in the mojave desert four the kingdom is where the king is with his subjects look in the middle of verse 20 21 right after jesus speaks of his second coming he again switches back to the present reality that answers their first question for behold the kingdom of god is in your midst now i just want you to know this little this little in your midst phrase is like it is just like the focal point of so much conflict you say well why is that well the New American Standard Bible and the English Standard Version translated in your midst or in the midst of you. While the King James, New King James Version and the New International Version translate it within you. So the question is, which one's right? Because some people base pretty much their whole theological understanding on this one verse. And so you mess with the verse and you don't interpret it the way they like, then it destroys their entire system. And that should tell you something about their system. Well, if we translate the word within you, then what Jesus is saying to the unbelieving Pharisees is the kingdom of God is in your hearts. Now, is there a problem with that? 
Uh, I think so. I think so. The problem is, is there are some heavy hitters, Greek scholars, one particularly, A.T. Robinson, who doctrinally is right where we're at, says in his word pictures in the New Testament that within you is the necessary and most natural way to translate the phrase, and it can't mean in your midst. He explains, quote, what Jesus says to the Pharisees is that they, as others, are to look for the kingdom of God within themselves, not in outward displays and supernatural manifestations, end quote. Yet Robertson's explanation doesn't quite fit what Jesus is saying. I mean, he may be a Greek scholar, but Jesus isn't saying you need to be looking for the kingdom of God in yourself in the future. He's using a present tense. The kingdom of God is right now at this very moment within you. Well, why don't we agree with that translation first? Jesus would never tell a group of hostile unbelievers the kingdom of God was, is within them. Secondly, nowhere else in the Bible is the kingdom of God ever described as something that is within men. Ever. This would be the only passage. And so because you have those two things, I think it's very, very unlikely that it means within you. If this is the only text that ever talks about the kingdom being in you, you are, kingdom is always something you get into. It's best to understand Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is among you or in your midst. Why? Because he was the king. He was standing there right at that moment in their midst. I mean, it fits the context perfectly, doesn't it? Not only that, it fits the farther context of the gospels. You say, well, how is that? Well, because when John the Baptist came preaching, we read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, he came preaching saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we are told, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus sends out the 70 to heal those who are sick and to say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. And then he goes on to say, if they reject the gospel, uh, Even the dust of the city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near you. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus says, But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so wherever Jesus is with his subjects, we have what? The kingdom of God. And all one needs to do is repent and believe and you get to enter the kingdom. You say, well, so, uh, okay, hold on a second. I said, well, I'm confused here. So what you're saying is, is that there is a spiritual reign of Christ right now? Yeah. That he's king right now? Yeah. So when he died and he ascended into heaven, he, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high? Yeah. And now he's ruling in the lives of the believers. You got it. And that if we repent and believe, we actually become kingdom saints? Yes. Well, where does it say that again? Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Here he says he has taken believers when they believe in Jesus. He has rescued them 
and has already transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved son. Do you see how that is a present reality? It's like, yeah. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 12, Paul says, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we receive, present tense, a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So when we place our faith in Christ, yes, we enter into the kingdom. We become kingdom saints. Now, our king is in present. Our king is in heaven. But we are ambassadors, Paul describes us. You know what an ambassador is? I'm a king. I have subjects in my kingdom. And they may be serving me in another kingdom, but I am their king, though they're in a different place. In this case, Jesus is in heaven, and he's ruling and reigning in the lives of believers today because we submit to him as our Lord, our king. Now, what must be understood is that there is this spiritual reality. Now, you might think that just because Jesus is ruling in heaven over the lives of believers that all will go well with them. I mean, some people, you know, you think, well, if Jesus is ruling right now, then why is there evil in this world? He's ruling believers. Well, then why isn't everything go well with believers? You know, why did my transmission break? You know, why did I get sick? Why did a loved one die? Why, why do all these things happen? If Jesus is ruling, then, then why is this happening to me? John Calvin points out that the present spiritual reign of Christ should not be confused with our personal health, wealth, and comfort. He says, quote, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans fourteen seventeen. These words briefly teach what the kingdom of Christ bestows upon us not being earthly or carnal and so subject to corruption, but spiritual. It raises us even to eternal life so that we can patiently live at present under toil, hunger, cold, contempt, disgrace, and other annoyances. Contented with this, that our king will never abandon us, but will supply our necessities until our warfare is ended and we are called to triumph, end quote. Remember Jesus said, lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. Jesus is never going to leave us or forsake us. He's with us, spiritually speaking. He's ruling and reigning in the lives of all believers. And, and what's interesting is a lot of times we think of this kingdom as something that's going to happen in the future. And you know what? The earthly reign of Christ is going to happen in the future. But right now there is a kingdom. He said, well, so how is that? You remember, well, if we ever get to it in Luke 19 in the parable of the nobleman in Luke 19 verses 12 through 27, the parable of the nobleman. Listen to how the parable starts. A nobleman, which represents Jesus, went to a distant country to receive a kingdom to himself and then return. Do you see that sequence? Jesus leaves, gets the kingdom, and then returns, having already received the kingdom. When Jesus died, 
Remember in the Great Commission, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, right? I'm the king. It says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Luke 22, verse 69 says, but from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I mean, he's ruling. There's no denying that. It's crystal clear. But just because he is on the throne, just because he is ruling in the lives of believers, does not mean that there is no earthly reign. There's people who tend to pendulum something. It's only a spiritual reign. There's not going to be any earthly reign of Christ. And the other people go, there's only an earthly reign. There's no spiritual reign. And the Bible teaches both. I mean, we just saw them, right? Surely there's going to be an earthly reign, a mediatorial kingdom of Christ where Christ rules over all the earth. Some say, well, that's not what the Bible says. You say, well, where does it say that? Well, Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. See, it's not of this world. Okay. We should always feel something is wrong when somebody takes one or two obscure verses and uses them to explain away a hundred clear verses. That's always the telltale sign. Well, you know, that says right here, Jesus is going to reign in the earth, but it doesn't mean that. Well, it says it here. Doesn't mean that. And here and here and here. Here and here and here. And here and here and here. Doesn't mean it. Doesn't mean it. Doesn't mean it. But this one text does mean that we have to explain away all the other ones. No, that's backwards. Gerald Hawthorne exemplifies this error when he says, quote, that Luke 17, 20 and 21 contains the clearest enunciation of the essential nature of the kingdom anywhere recorded in the words of Christ. End quote. The clearest enunciation. It's one of the most disputed texts in the whole book of Luke. But he tips his hand, doesn't he? Because he's got to have that verse mean what it does. Otherwise, it destroys his whole system. So the question is, so then what did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom was not of this world? Well, what is this world? When the Bible speaks of this world, what is it talking about? The evil world system, almost always, right? Now, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, right now, there's a different ruler of this world. And who is that ruler? And his demons and evil men. But his kingdom is not like that. His kingdom's where he's ruling. Where there's righteousness, not evil. Where there's prosperity, not curse. And so Jesus' kingdom is not anything like the sin-cursed kingdoms of this world it is totally of a different realm it's of a heavenly realm remember we pray thy kingdom come on earth as it what is in heaven bring heaven to earth that's why it's not of this realm it's totally different that's all jesus was saying you interpret it that way then you don't have to reinterpret it the other hundred other verses probably more than a hundred 
In 2 Timothy 4, 1, Paul speaks of the kingdom as coinciding with Christ's future second coming. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead as, at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Notice there is a future kingdom. You say, well, wasn't Paul the one who said that we already entered into the kingdom? Yeah. And that if we believe we are transferred into the kingdom? Yeah. So why does he say we look forward to a future kingdom? Because that's true too. You see, we are experiencing right now a degree of the kingdom as Jesus is ruling. We are his ambassadors here in this world, but we're going to experience the fullness of the kingdom. Don't deny the fullness of the kingdom when Christ is present in his glorified body, ruling and reigning over the earth. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, yeah, I've been a lot really persecuted, but Jesus is coming to rescue me. He didn't say, oh, the kingdom's only spiritual. I mean, what, that, what would that mean? That Jesus is going to rescue me. If there is no future kingdom, James in James chapter two, verse five says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? You can be poor. You can be suffering in this world. You can have Jesus as your Lord, but oh, it's going to be good when he comes back and he establishes his kingdom on the earth. John in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. This is probably one of the clearest texts. It's looking ahead to the second coming and it says this. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Did you hear that? The kingdom of this world, this evil world system has become... The kingdom of his Christ. That's exactly what we learned in Daniel last week, right? There are all these kingdoms. And then there was the rock cut out of mountain, not by the hands of men, which smashes those other earthly kingdoms and itself will endure forever. There it is again. Imagine. Four times in the epistles to the churches, we are told the kingdom is something to be inherited in the future. Twice in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And again in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Galatians 5, 21, Ephesians 5, 5. We err if we say the kingdom is only spiritual. We err if we say it's only earthly because the Bible teaches both. There is a spiritual reign now. There is a future earthly reign of Christ. And we can believe both of those. They don't conflict. We can just believe what the Bible says. There's no need to try and explain away a whole bunch of texts because we only want to grab onto one obscure verse. And so when Jesus, the king, is there ruling his subjects and standing in front of the Pharisees, he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's like the same thing as saying the kingdom of God has come upon you or the kingdom of God is near. I think most of us are probably familiar with uh, Handel's Messiah and the great hallelujah chorus. Remember that? I had a good experience with that. Um... This is going to date me a little bit, but uh, when I was in my second year of seminary, uh, it was 1989, 
I went to Israel and uh, went on a 13-day study tru- tour with the Master's College, and we just, like, all day long we were studying. And they, they had told us that you will give you a half day. The, la- the 13th day that we're there, half, the last half of the day, you can go do whatever you want. But the rest is packed solid. So that if you want to do any shopping or exploring, you can do it in a half day. And I thought, well, that's not good. I mean, I want to explore. I mean, the other stuff was good, but I wanted more. So we would go out and go to, you know, this dig and this tell and this city and this ruin and this place. And, and so we were just driving around the, the country and we'd get back to our hotel sometimes really late at night. And, and uh, you know, we'd get back at, you know, seven or eight and people would have dinner and, they'd, you know, want to take a shower and just crash. But not me. I had the second shift. Swing shift. And uh, so I would go for, for kind of evening exploration. And so I, I, I decided one night, you know, we, we got back to the King David Hotel. And I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out there and you know, explore. And so uh, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk around the whole city. So I started just walking over there. I walked over south of the city of David, walked up the Kidron Valley, went through the Garden of Gethsemane, kind of went in between the Mount of Olives right up through there, went up, kind of traversed up, got around the the cemetery part, and I just kind of kept going around the old city walls. And as I was coming around um, on the west side of the city walls, there was this, this huge, I mean, it looks like a castle. It's so cool. It's, you know, it's dark. Yeah, the stars are out. I don't know if there was a moon or not, but I'm just walking in the dark. I don't know if it was safe or not, but I just did it. I was young and dumb. So I'm walking out there, and I'm tired, you know. I've been hiking, you know, for a couple hours, and, and it's pretty late at night, you know. It's probably 9.30 or 10 or something. And so I sit down on the slope of the Hinnom Valley, and I look, and down there, there's all these lights, and I can see there's a band shell down there, and there's this huge orchestra. And I think, oh, what are they doing there in the middle of the night? You know, I mean, not in the middle of the night, but, I mean, you know, it's pretty late. And um, it's gotten dark. It's those summer, so it didn't get dark till about 10 or so, so it was later, and... Uh, so I'm, they're all, you know, you know, tuning their instruments. And uh, so I'm just kind of watching. And I thought, I look down there. Man, there's a lot of people down there. I guess they're going to have some sort of concert. And so I'm just sitting on the hill, you know, up above the hill. And I'm looking down. And, and all of a sudden, they start playing Handel's Messiah. And then the the fireworks begin to go off. You have this incredible fireworks in the Hinnom Valley, and then they start letting off smoke bombs, and then these lasers start going out. And I'm like, fireworks, lasers, this is great. And um, so I'm listening to it, and then what happens is they, you know, start talking about hallelujah, hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And I thought, whoa. And then, hallelujah, hallelujah, and a whole bunch of more of those. And then the line, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And I'm thinking, man, they let him sing this in in Israel? (laughs) I mean, it was major. It was like this huge gospel presentation at nighttime with a laser show and it was shining up on the walls of the, the city. And, you know, I went back the next morning. We were all having breakfast. And I said, man, you guys missed the concert. They said, what concert? Oh, the laser show and the fireworks and the orchestra. I said, how much it cost? Free from the hillside. 
But what's neat about it is Handel wrote that line from Revelation 11:15. Verbatim, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you know, one of the things we have as a hope as believers is to know that Jesus is coming back. And he is going to establish his kingdom on earth. And he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. And we thank you for being our God. Father, I pray now as we sing, our hearts would be full of praise and worship to you. I pray, Father, that we would marvel at your goodness to us, that we would eagerly anticipate your coming again to earth and that in coming again to earth, we would um, praise you, worship you and serve you as we rule and reign with Christ forever and ever. Hallelujah.